Are your school days out of sight when you took English, art, and math? What's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger or disgusting Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm your host, John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host, Carolyn Fulford. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me back. A sequel. It's been years and years. Uh, you were a, something of a mainstay of uh, co-hosting in the early years of this podcast, um, but, you know, life has intervened, and I was trying to think of people to bring back on the podcast, and I thought, what happened to Carolyn? <laughs> and you, gra- you graciously decided to come back on the uh, podcast. What did happen to me, honestly? No. <laughs> so could you reintroduce yourself to the, the listeners out there? Sure. I'm Caroline. Hello, sophomore lit world. Uh, I am a librarian and fiction writer, mostly based out of Brooklyn, And uh, this is actually, when I said the sequel, this is kind of literally the sequel to my Jane Eyre episode, because what we're reading has a lot to do with my previous episode. And I suggested this as kind of a continuation of themes that I brought up back then, themes I'm always thinking about when it comes to Jane Eyre, the works of the Western canon, feminism, fiction and English, that sort of thing. So yeah, very excited to be back. We are doing your suggestion, which is Jean Reese's 1966 novel, Wide Sargasso Sea, uh, which, as you mentioned, is a something of a, it's not really a sequel or a prequel. It's sort of a, a different point of view on, on Jane Eyre. This is a novel I was well aware of because it was constantly being brought up in all the different seminars uh, I attended in grad school, but I never read. So I, I feel very, very embarrassed to admit that because I know this is something of a foundational novel. I mean, I think it's discussed now mostly in the works of post-colonial literature. It's also, you know, a classic of the feminist text. I was definitely introduced to it more along the lines of feminist literature, um, being that it is in direct conversation with a sort of classic of feminist, like pre-feminist literature in the English language. Um, But now I think uh, I definitely read it more through the lens of a kind of post-colonial critique of the Western, of Western culture, Western canon written by someone who whose experience also came from that intersection and someone, a writer whose reputation and space in the canon has been kind of, you know, rehabilitated and rediscovered um, in her in, late in her life and um, late in the 20th century. Um, and we can get in a, a little bit more into Jean Reese's place in the culture. But yeah, I mean, I, I, with the copy I got from the library does have the assignment sticker on the spine. So I know that it, it is at least in some New York schools assigned at the high school level. I, that's surprising to me, but, um, but yeah, I was definitely introduced to it in college, especially as a way of like kind of expanding upon, you know, the literature that maybe high schoolers would have already absorbed like Jane Eyre as I did by then. So Jean Reese, um, 
was uh, a British citizen born in uh, what is now Dominica uh, in the Caribbean. And, and from what I understand, a lot of her books deal with characters uh, coming from the Caribbean colonies to to the UK. Was born in 1890, and a lot of her books were published in the early part of the 20th century. She was she had a career in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and then, as you say, she was neglected for a while, to the point that when she wrote this book at the behest of what was her friend's name, Selma Vastias, who was a uh, an actress and and writer encouraged her to start writing again. She was uh, Reese was living in kind of poverty actually at that point, um, and she wrote this novel. It brought her back into the to the, for, the forefront of uh, as as an important uh, novelist. No longer simply a kind of a uh, an, an also ran in the uh, Somerset Mom era, mm-hmm. but now she was an. Uh, she was being really taken very seriously. And of course, this novel, as you say, gets um, assigned a lot. You can see why, because it's it's a, it's a, a, a great idea. Yeah. I mean, Jean Reese was of this, you know, movable feast milieu back in the day. Um, and I uh, there was an interview late in her life, I think, literally like right before she died that she did with the Paris Review where she kind of just went over the whole breadth of her career because Wide Sargasso had gotten her this kind of late in life boost. Um, she does sound very depressed <laughs> throughout the Paris Review interview. Like, and honestly, in reading Wide Sargasso Sea, I literally thought of that like meme from Parks and Rec where it's like, could a depressed person make this? And that kind of was the vibe throughout all this novel. But yeah, she uh, apparently really wanted to be an actress. That was her main sort of artistic craft when she was a young person and she was basically prevented from doing so because of this Caribbean accent that she could never quite shake. And that, you know, Britishness was always this thing that both was in her and of her, but was this kind of, you know, persona she could never quite take on in her language and in her cadence and way of speaking and in eventually her literature, the places and people she couldn't forget, which she does not depict sentimentally, given that. Um, and we can get further into that. But um, but yeah, I was really fascinated by the story of this this woman, white this white woman, whose sort of experience of race and culture was such that she could see the kind of colonial project uh, a lot more clearly than other white people of this sort of generation of literature could, perhaps. For people who don't remember Jane Eyre, uh, towards the end of the book, when 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 Jane is working for Mister Rochester, she discovers that Rochester has a wife that is being kept up in the attic, who's who is has gone mad, and Rochester explains it as. He was married to her in the Caribbean at a young age. He was not told that there was madness that ran in her family, that she had a brother who was uh, a sickling and his her mother had gone crazy. And now here in England, she is she's also gone mad. So uh, Rochester does what any good 
uh, <laughs> landed gentry would do and, and, and sticks her in the attic, uh, and, and, and keeps her there for her own protection. Uh, that, and at the, towards the end of the book, of course, uh, Bertha burns the house down. So this is the book about Bertha's side of the story. And Bertha plays a different, but I think thematically linked role in the text of Jane Eyre that Antoinette, as we come to know her, uh, plays in this novel, Wide Sargasso Sea. Um, I would say in Jane Eyre, she is kind of this this vestige of the gothic novel, like the madness, the the kind of, you know, literally closetedness is very, you know, symbolic of this, you know, kind of caged heat, this kind of eroticism that you know, Victorian values are kind of trying to shove away and that Jane Eyre herself must kind of rise above in order to be this, you know, angel who saves Rochester and literally cures him of blindness by the power of love at the end. Um, so but there is, but there is like a, I would say there is a kinship between um, these characters, both as Antoinette is, portrayed in her own perspective and via uh, the unnamed, but presumably Mr. Rochester in Wide Sargasso Sea and Jane as she sees herself in her novel. They are these women who are kind of fighting for their senses of self. They're the ways that, you know, English values are kind of there to press the life out of women in the institution of marriage. Um, and the kind of triumph of like feelings but in this case in Jane Eyre's case like also morals and ethical an ethical sense of of behavior uh triumph in the end so yeah I think in, in my edition there was a, an introduction by Edwidge Danticat that explicitly kind of said that she you know she also read Jane Eyre and she wondered if Jane if Jean Reese had the same thought of like who is Bertha Mason Rochester who maybe maybe she's a product of Rochester's oppression. Like, you know, there definitely is another story here that, um, that can be told in in a way that goes beyond fan fiction. Although I guess it is like literally fan fiction. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, um, the way that Jane Eyre, the novel functions in this one is interesting because I think you can read Wide Sargasso Sea without having the plot of Jane Eyre, in the back of your mind, although that certainly enhances it. Um, I think that it can be read on its own. Let's talk a bit about Antoinette. That's the actual name of Bertha in Reese's story. When the story opens, she is the daughter of a previous slave owner who has died. And it opens basically just a few years after slavery gets abolished in uh, Jamaica, uh, which was what eighteen thirty eight right off the bat she she 's in a precarious situation. Her father is dead, her mother seems to be losing a bit of grip her her own grip on reality and and life, and they are while they still have their uh plantation mansion, they don 't have the money to keep it up, and on top of that, everyone around them hates them. Uh, as as the previous uh, slave owners, um, she is not from 
uh, Jamaica. She's from Martinique, and that's important because Martinique is a French colony, and it's also uh, it's also a Creole country. And and Cre- Creole is a, a hard term to explain because it gets used so many different mm-hmm. ways. Uh, it generally refers to. I don't know, more of a kind of a culture around uh, the the intermixing of Europeans with uh, with with Africans and with uh, Native Americans and, and a language that is uh, a sort of a adaptation of French. So the racial status of of uh, Antoinette is a little bit ambiguous to me as I read this through. Uh, there are there are a few points in the book where people comment on her her uh, her complexion. Mm-hmm. It is explicitly mentioned a couple times that she is white, but basically not white enough even then for like a true Englishness. Like she in the childhood section, she looks at like this kind of cartoonish portrait of like the miller's daughter and that's like that's englishness that's you know blonde curls and like rustic you know kind of imaginary also you know englishness so basically i i thought that was really interesting like i my memory my sort of mistaken memory of this novel was that she was like explicitly racially othered and she because she the character bertha mason kind of is in the memory of other characters in Jane Eyre. Like she's, I, but it could also just be because all of the qualities that people associate her are also those that are othered. So I think that this novel and Jane Eyre kind of are in keeping with this idea of like race is yes, you know, phenotype, but it's all, and heritage or whatever, but it's also like inner qualities or qualities that the external world kind of puts on a person if they stay there for too, too many generations or something like that. One of the um, problematic things about Jane Eyre is that in the in Bertha's character in that book, the the, the racial mixture is uh, associated with degeneracy mm-hmm. with this some somehow that she's by virtue of being of mixed blood, she is out of control of her emotions, that she is promiscuous. Uh, and she's also prone to sickness and madness. And those are all uh, <laughs> disturbing beliefs that uh, definitely were a part of English thought in the 19th century. Uh, this book, one of the things that I admire about this book is we don't know the full story of Antoinette's family, but we do know that she is not accepted either by British society or by the uh, black Jamaican society. Yeah, I I will say um, I did think that the like we're never we're never being told that the lens through which we're seeing characters and settings is like objective truth. I think that the like first of all, this novel is does have two perspectives, both Antoinette and the unnamed, but we'll just call him Mr. Rochester. Um, neither of them have 
like an objective or omniscient perspective on anything. So we see all the characters of color, meaning both the black and racially mixed characters through their perspective. And they are mostly, you know, mysterious, threatening, sexy, like all of these kind of racist tropes or racialized tropes. But I will say that I think the main difference between the way that Jane Eyre is employing those tropes and the way that Wide Sargasso sees employing those tropes is that in Jane Eyre, I think they're kind of just like unquestioned and take and taken as like an accurate kind of, you know, estimation of the inner truths of these characters that are other than white and English in some way. Whereas in Wide Sargasso, see, because, again, because the main character is like, literally seen as white, but not white enough and too connected to the environment and too connected to, and like literally related to people who are not white. Um, that is seen as like race is race is a lens as well. Like race is something that exists in the imagination and in reality, because, you know, as we see with the character of Daniel, who kind of is the, you know, instigator in the sort of break between Antoinette and Mr. Rochester, that um, he has a you know entirely different status because he is a racially mixed man of color. He explains his own biography, how he was cast aside, and his mother, you know, had you know didn't have status compared to other sort of women uh, women of color. That um, I think, oh god, I forget how exactly he's related. He says that he is the bastard son of. Um, Antoinette's father, who is dead by the time the novel begins, uh, die again, like died of, of drink, died of madness. Like it's all, but I do think that like the madness that is just that these white Creole characters or the lineage that Antoinette has is the, a madness that is different from the kind of like, you know, almost like a heart of darkness, like erotic kind of, you know, libidinal madness that exists in the environment. It's almost as if as the white colonizers who are there for more than one generation, they kind of attain this madness over time through another form of like colonial self-destructive violence that exists both because they're enforcing violence via slavery and becoming victims of violence when colonized, formerly enslaved people are asserting themselves via violence. And, you know, that's how Antoinette loses her, uh, her first family home is because it's burned down by um, the village people who basically are angry that her family is kind of attaining the planter class is attaining status again via her mother's second marriage to Mason, um, the stepfather that Antoinette has. So, yeah, I mean, it's like colonial. I, when I say it's like a post colonial text, it's because the plot is so dependent on the effects of these sort of racial colonial power relations that exist after slavery is abolished, but also just in a society that is shaped by something like, you know, colonizing and by slavery. It's also the intersection of post colonialism with the economic realities of uh, gender in mm -hmm. the British system in the same way that um, 
there is this dark underbelly to Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice, which I, I always feel like a lot of people miss when they think of it as primarily a romance, because I think it is primarily an examination of what the reality is when women aren't allowed to own property. And similarly, in this book, Mason is swooping in to marry Antoinette's mom, Annette, because he sees value in her property. Mm -hmm. And he thinks, I can get this property, I can fix it up, and I, you know, I'll, I, I will get my, my riches that way. After the, after Annette is out of the picture because of her eventual breakdown following the, uh, a riot by the, uh, locals in which the house is burned down in, in a, a prefiguration of what's going to come. And Antoinette's, uh, brother is, uh, sickened by the the smoke and eventually dies actually dies while Antoinette is in a coma basically mm-hmm. once uh, Annette is out of the scene Mr. Mason needs to find some way to get Antoinette uh, married off so she's no longer a uh, a drain on on him and that's what sets up the whole uh well we'll marry her off to Rochester thing I will say um if I had one note to give Jean Reese, which I'll go ahead and do. I'm on a podcast. I'm an unpub. I'm a mostly unpublished fiction writer. Sure. Um, I do think that the the clipped winged parrot burning to death um, and going down in like literal flames, and that being, I mean, I guess it, from a plot reason, it kind of works because it's taken as this like bad omen and that's why the villagers don't just kill them all after they burn the house down but yeah seeing like you know the beloved parrot of annette you know burning to death and having her just like in her madness could keep screaming the, the same things that the parrot was screaming i think that might have been a, a touch too much <laughs> but um but yeah i mean this, the image itself is is very powerful and and you know the idea of fire and burning and houses burning down is something that, you know, happens a few times. I think if you've read Jane Eyre and you recognize the characters here, you are immediately kind of like clocked into like, okay, this is, this is something that's burned into Antoinette and it's something that has happened to her. And, you know, I think we should take that as a reason why she in the English house in Thornfield, where she eventually ends up, that ends up being the, the way that she can or attempts to kind of sees back what power she has been deprived of by being locked in the attic when that is by, you know, burning down the English house that is in this kind of, you know, hostile jungle countryside initially, but also is in this very hostile, cold, alien place to her by the end of her life. In Jane Eyre, uh, Rochester does mention that uh, Bertha, the the arrangement was in in part so that he could get this uh, this dowry of 30,000 pounds. Rochester at that point was, what was he, like a second son or mm-hmm. something? He didn't, he couldn't uh, inherit. And in Jane Eyre, you know, I, I, I think that Bertha and Rochester obviously represent a really screwed up, messed up 
situation for women, but they also that that relationship is also a lot of anxieties that uh, I think exist for both men and women in a society where you are married for life, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of marriages at the, uh, at the, the level of the upper classes are being arranged uh, for economic reasons. And the question of whether or not you are actually going to be compatible or like this person uh, is is an open one. And then the question is, what do you do when you're stuck? In Jane Eyre, I think, I think we're asked to sympathize with Rochester uh, for, for having himself stumbled into this relationship. Um, in this book, however, Rochester is, is very much a, an author of the eventual downfall of, of Antoinette. Mm -hmm. Uh whether or not because he believes these uh, stories that he's been told by uh, this guy, Daniel, who, as you mentioned, is one of several uh, of of Antoinette's uh, half siblings that are out there because Antoinette's dad apparently uh, slept with a lot of his uh, enslaved uh, people. Mm -hmm. That that really doesn't stand as a as an excuse um, one thing that I, I did like though was there's a point where uh, Antoinette's um, basically her her old nurse nanny who's who's there what Christophine right Christophine is 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 taking Rochester to task for the way that he's treating Antoinette and one of the things that she is angry with him is, is she basically says you're getting her, her all sexed up you're getting her all hooked on on love and now she's going to be attached to you no matter what you do which is a complete inversion of what uh bertha the way bertha is de uh, depicted mm -hmm. in jane eyre as the mysterious exotic uh licentious woman it's actually rochester who seems to be using eroticism as a weapon against uh against antoinette yeah i found that so interesting especially the way that, you know, sex and marriage are considered to be entirely different things, I think, in this world. And and sex is kind of this thing that is ultimately, I mean, they're both in their way ultimately bad for women, but which is why I found it so interesting that um, in the Paris Review interview, Jane Reese said that she envied uh the black and women of color that she grew up around because they did not have this imperative to marry or this like idea that marriage is like the thing that legitimizes their sexuality because as black and women of color like there was no legitimizing their sexuality they were just kind of like condemned just categorically but they you do have christophine saying like i have three children by three fathers and I never married any of them and everything I have is mine. And, you know, that definitely is, is seen as, you know, part of the kind of, um, you know, lowered status that is along racial lines in this society. But uh, it's also intersected with gender in the sense that marriage is this thing that's considered a, you know, constructive part of, in this case, Englishness and the whiteness of, you know, Western culture and being enshrined in 
religion and, you know, everything that's supposed to be part of a civilized world, but it's the very thing that undoes all of Antoinette's freedom, like her freedom and her sense of self, not because, uh, you know, she's like literally imprisoned yet, although that is to come, but because she has no longer any say in where she goes, where she lives. Um, and the more, I think as Christophine says, like the more that she tries to make herself understood, to love Rochester, the worse that she makes herself look, the more savage she makes herself look to him because she's not, she can't be this like passive retiring, you know, shrinking violet that is basically the only way to be a white woman and a white English woman. And, you know, who knows if that was ever really something she could attain being Creole. Um, I think that's a tension that exists throughout this novel. Yeah, that's a good point because um, there is there is a part of this relationship towards the beginning that Rochester relates where it seems like they almost could have made a go of it, where they are getting to know each other, talking about what marriage is and whether or not uh, whether or not Antoinette really wants to be married. And there's a wonderful part where she asks Rochester if England is like a dream mm. and what she's doing here is she's mirroring back that othering, that exoticizing that uh, we associate with European culture doing to other cultures. Now in, in her mind, uh, England is the exotic, faraway, magical place where people don't seem to obey the laws of nature. And, and he says, "Well, no, no, this is here. This is this is a dream." And she's mm -hmm. like, "No, no, this place where there's no trees, there's no there's there's just all these people in buildings together. That's a dream." Earlier, you brought up Joseph Conrad and. When I read that passage, this reminded me of that famous part at the beginning of Heart of Darkness, where he says this also was one of the dark places of the earth. We're talking about England, you know, as, as he's about to set off for Africa, he's saying, yeah, England as well was a, a, a savage land to somebody at one point. Um, now, of course, Heart of Darkness is... Um, problematic in a lot of different <laughs> ways but but I, th I still think that 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 line is 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 a, is a great line yeah as to whether uh Antoinette and Rochester ever could have made it I am inclined to say that basically that I think that's a separate question from like a lot of this novel is about kind of like the way that the characters are making sense of their ideas of their environment and how the, their, their environment is kind of mirrored back onto their, their embodied identities. Um, I did think a lot about the Caribbean post-colonial thinker, uh, Glissant, whose um, defense of, um, I think, obscurity, uh, no, um, Oh, opacity. Opacity, yes. You, you sent me the, this, <laughs> I know, this article. I, 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 I don't want anyone to think that I, <laughs> no. I, I knew that. I did not know this until no, I, you sent I me just, this article. The, yeah, the word just momentarily slipped my mind, but opacity, yes. Um, basically how the idea that we should like make an effort to understand or or the like from the perspective of the colonizer or from the perspective of the colonized that they should make some sort of effort to be understandable 
Two, uh, another way of viewing is itself kind of reproducing the logic of colonization. Like there, there should be some ambiguity or space, both both aesthetically and politically. And I think that this novel is a good example of um, literature that exists very much at the intersection of aesthetics and politics. Um, that there's an opaqueness there that need not be penetrated, basically. And that, you know, opacity is kind of a demand that a colonized people and a colonized culture can make on its own behalf so as not to, you know, bend over backwards and do all this work to be legible uh, to a kind of colonial gaze. You know, I mean, I think that if this marriage maybe could have worked if, like, neither of them had spent so much time, you know, agonizing over whether they were being kind of adequately seen or understood based on the land and the culture and the language. But, you know, this is a, this is a time and a place where maybe that wasn't possible. When you say that, that reminds me of whenever you see someone on Twitter saying, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have time to explain, <laughs> uh, you know, so, some, some marginalized group, uh, someone saying it's not my job to explain, you know, the, the black experience, mm -hmm. the female experience, the gay experience. And, uh, I think that that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what I, I got, felt when I read that article. One of the things that, that struck me as I was reading this book was, I, as I was reading it, I thought at first, oh, Reese is a very uh, clear, um, precise writer. At first, I thought, oh, this is this is uh, this feels very modern to me. It doesn't feel very mannered. The the writing feels that way. But then, as the book goes on the writing becomes more subjective and interior mm -hmm. uh, as, as uh, Ant Antoinette breaks down that happens, but it also happens with Rochester in his section. I think that as time goes on, we get these, he, he starts to report his thoughts uh, and, and the writing becomes elliptical. You know, there's, there's these, these sudden breaks. Uh, and I think uh, that, I find that interesting too. I, I don't. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if it has a thematic purpose. It certainly was arresting. Later sections started to read a little bit like Faulkner to me. Mm. I think it it does serve a character purpose, especially with uh, Mr. Rochester, because we, you know, again, if you recognize these characters from Jane Eyre, you know the sort of general arc of Antoinette. You might not know how she gets there, but this, you know, where it ends. And with the Rochester section, I think that the increasing sort of subjectivity and the elliptical quality of the prose, as you said, I think it, it works to establish that the violence that he does to her by locking her away and sending and like, you know, basically taking her away from everything she's known is basically him trying it's his own self-defense in his mind it's him trying to reclaim the objectivity of englishness and being in being the sort of patriarch the husband the the person who can just kind of returned back to this alien world england whenever he can't whenever he wants to and bring this subject creature with him so yeah i mean i i do think that it's there to establish that, 
you know, the increasing sort of distrust between them and the hurt feelings that come with, you know, him not really letting her explain or her own background or, or defend herself as like a real person who's not just a resource that might be damaged or corrupt in some way based on, you know, the story he keeps hearing and, you know, different versions about her family and her upbringing. Um, I think that, yes, we know about her breakdown, but it's kind of his breakdown too. And, you know, when Jane meets him in Jane Eyre, we know that he's already kind of a broken man in some ways. And I think in, from Jane's perspective, that's because he like is so heroically holding on to this, you know, taking care of this broken woman who is holding him back from being happy. But I think in a way it could also be read as, you know, he is having a, he's an Englishman who's maybe being forced to have a new relationship with his own, you know, sensuality and his own ability to do things, to do things that are not, you know, thought of as being gentlemanly, like, you know, have sex with this woman, Amelie, who's a, a woman of color servant who works for them and kind of, you know, flaunt that in their household and, you know, have this um, sort of perpetuate the same sin as like all these, you know, white male colonizers that have made them so hated in environments like this. Um, he probably doesn't like what this environment and this marriage and this situation shows him about himself. You know, that's, I think that's present in the prose. He, he comes to the Caribbean because he is uh, a gentleman without prospects. You know, he, he's, he's uh, in that tenuous situation of not knowing exactly what to do when you don't have an inheritance and you don't, you, you know, the, the, there's not uh, class mobility. He can't, he can't pick up a trade. He can't, you know, do. So he, he comes here, and uh, Antoinette is a solution for him to be exploited. Part of the problem for him is that once that, uh, once that transaction is complete. He wants to go back to England thinking, okay, now I'm a gentleman and now I have a great house. And here's this, this woman who he doesn't even, he doesn't really acknowledge. <laughs> he, she's given, she's given him so much economically and he doesn't even acknowledge that. I mean, she's, she's kind of seen as, you know, this kind of supernatural, like when, when he's, when he has his first blush of, of love with her, she's kind of seen as this like supernatural presence in a way. And again, it's very exoticized, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it is almost like, you know, like a, almost like a princess from Mars kind of thing where it's like, he's out in this alien planet and this is like, you know, the sexy alien that is, that is spending time with, that he's spending time with and like whether or not he understands her or she, she, there's really a limited extent to which she can become human to him. And it's in those moments where she kind of melds with the environment or, or even demonstrates a joy and familiarity with environment. Like there's, I mean, there's at least one passage where she's just like, you know, drinking water that's kind of been collected and leaves that are along the path. And that's very like exciting, but also kind of shocking to him. And, you know, I mean, there's just 
there, there's just no way that the way that she behaves and exists in this world could be legible to him as um, anything other than, you know, being akin to these, you know, sexually exciting, but also othered kinds of resources, which are, you know, the the black women and the women of color. So yeah, in, in her kinship with them, she's also kind of racially and sexually othered um, and exists in that sort of intersectional oppression, you know, in a way that is not as intense as the women who are actually, you know, abused and harmed and sort of made subject like the other women are, but it's also related to it. I mean, it, I think that this is a, this is a novel that is not fully at ease with like heart, very kind of hard set categories. Um, even though, you know, all anyone talks about is like, who's, people's races and their, their marriages and things like that. A very categorical society that at the same time is, um, extremely gray. You mentioned at the beginning, uh, that you see this book now primarily as a post-colonial novel and are not, uh, as you don't see primarily in its context as a revisionist take on, um, on Jane Eyre. Uh, one thing that I was wondering is, as I was reading this is to what extent would this book have any resonance at all for somebody who hadn't read Jane Eyre? And then that, that led me to wonder when this book was was uh, was originally published, was it publicized with everybody knowing that this book was going to be about Jane Eyre. It would it would be an interesting thing to pick up this book and not know that it was it was about Jane Eyre and only to come to that discovery through reading the book. I don't know whether there was ever a time where that was possible. Yeah, I mean it, it seemed like a lot of the conversation around it in terms of like how it was being reviewed, how it bolstered her reputation especially um was kind of assumed with that knowledge of like, oh, this is like a, a take on Jane Eyre, a whole section of Jane Eyre that has, was unexplored in the novel. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's hard to imagine it being done the same way now. I know that there have been other works of fiction that are like the untold story of X in Y better known novel or source material or what have you. Um, one of the main things that I think would not be done today in a similar project would be to give Rochester as much of the perspective as he had that I thought that I found was quite surprising, not in an unpleasant way. Like I think it actually worked because it kind of gave the the stakes towards the end that I think it needed. But, um, but yeah, having the sort of, you know, white patriarchal presence still there, I think throws everything into stark relief um, and also I've, I've also just like looked at the various like covers of this novel over its publication history is that that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. Like the one that I have now is, is like unquestionably a white woman in a state of what seems a very like Ophelia like kind of, you know, drowning, but pretty. Um, I think the original cover is of a far more like racially ambiguous character, who is supposed to be, I, I take it to be Antoinette. Um, I know there was like a movie version in the nineties that I have never heard, heard a kind word about. So I didn't go into looking into it myself, but, um, 
But yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I have to say that I think that like a 21st century version of this would probably not be as good because I think it would do, it would just be a lot more simplistic and just saying like, did you, did you hear about how, you know, white gender ideology is bad and how it's bad for the, you know, how it's, how the sort of this sort of inheritance of like, you know, English language literature is like problematic, but, um, but I think because though it's willing to do things like have the main character be racist in a lot of ways, like literally exists in a racist world and having racist, you know, perspectives on the characters of color herself, despite the fact that she is like implicated in that view in so many real and lived ways. Um, I thought that was so interesting and what makes it that to me, that's what kind of elevates it beyond like a fan fiction thought exercise. Like it's, it's not willing to like, you know, totally free Bertha Mason from her cell either. I think, I think that's a really, really good point that you make there. If this were like, say, Wicked, uh, as an example, there would be an, an effort to make Bertha a heroic in some way. Mm -hmm. And she isn't. She is a complicated and, uh, to use the terminology, it, there's an opacity to her. Mm -hmm. She, in the end, there's some things that are unknowable. The, you know, we, she certainly has been treated poorly by, uh, by life and by Rochester, but she's also her own person and she's allowed to be her own person. And I, I, I don't, you know, as I was reading it, there were parts, there were times where I didn't understand her motivation, but it never felt, but that didn't leave me as a reader feeling like Reese had got it wrong. Just that uh, it, it was, you know, it was not my life. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the cover. I was just looking, I was looking at my cover. I have the Norton uh, cover from the, from the, 80s and my god it's the most 80s thing it looks just like it looks like every uh, uh magical realist novel that was being mm. published at the time like they they, they have uh antoinette you know like a field of flowers in the burning house in the background nice and there she is uh unmistakably of mixed race mm -hmm. on, on the on that cover oh speaking of magical realism there definitely is an element, I think, of magic in this as well. Um, not in the sense that this is a world where, like, magic is taken to be real and has... I mean, I guess it does have an effect on the plot. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking of the crucial moment where Antoinette finally asks Christophine, who we've we've heard many times, like, has this kind of reputation for being an Obeya woman, which is like a having witchcraft, basically... Um, she wants a love potion from her to make Rochester love her because she feels him pulling away. And it basically just ends up poisoning him. <laughs> like he had he had a fever when he first came to the islands. And now he, he's been very kind of cautious about how all these foods and, you know, plants are going to affect him. And finally, she has like poisoned him and made him very ill. And he does recover and they go to England. But um but yeah, there's so much in like the ways that I guess magic is consumed both 
through food, but also the natural world. Um, I thought that the sort of ambiguity around that was was interesting as well. I think, again, I think in a more contemporary version, it would be like, oh, this this is like a full on maybe like fantasy novel that has like a magic system and blah, blah, blah. Like I, I kind of liked that, like magic is yet another way that race kind of exists between um, these characters and their way of understanding the world. It, it's sort of like one of those uh, those old ghost stories where you could either there's there's a rational explanation and there's the like but if you want to believe it was really ghost all along you can believe it was <laughs> ghost all along i mean rationally she could have just poisoned him but if you want to believe that there's something mystical going on it's that rochester is alien to this world and he can't accept the uh the forces of this world mm-hmm. like he, he's not part of the logic of this world uh, in the same way that uh, poor Antoinette is not part of the logic of of England when she goes there. There's the point where Rochester starts calling her Bertha. Mm-hmm. And he says to her, it's because it's a name he likes. Uh, <laughs> obviously, there's part of a setup here to, to complete this uh, this forced transformation into the character of, of, of Jane Eyre. Um but I, I, I have to say, I, I felt like that was a little bit, those were the plot machinations. I never quite understood why he would do that. Or if he was, why didn't he choose a better name? Yeah. I mean, she's, in the moment, she's like, oh, you call, you calling me a different name is, is an obeya, is obeya too. Like, you're, this is the magic that you're working on me to force me into a different shape, basically. Um but yeah, I I would I would take it pretty personally. No offense to all the Berthas out there. If someone just looked at me and it's like, you just have a Bertha vibe to me. You just I'm just gonna call you Bertha now, and just to you know almost basically never acknowledge that you had another name, Bertha Mason, because I mean, it does sa- it does not sound like a particularly pretty name compared to Antoinette Causeway, but um, but yeah, that's. Maybe maybe she kind of started off with the name Antoinette and she was like, this sounds like a lot more like the kind of girl I would know in back in the Caribbean and not so much a Bertha. But I was glad to read this. I um, I have not read it since college. I I was also a pleasure to go and to look into Jean Reese um, as an author, especially someone who was discovered late in life. I think that's always kind of heartening um, not just as women authors, but, you know, people whose place in, you know, history is definitely discovered when they were not, you know, necessarily in the prime of their life. Um, but yeah, this is a, I think this is a worthy work of literature to return to in the 21st century. And I think people should read it. Thanks again to co-host Carolyn Fulford. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. If you'd like to write the show, to suggest a book, or to just say hi, the email address is sophomore.literature at gmail.com. Carolyn, thanks so much for being on. I, I it's, 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 I'm, I'm, happy to catch up with uh yeah. you know uh facebook is kind of dead to me right now so. I, know. I, I, have, I have not been on in quite a while but. 